1: This is, and you would have to agree, disastrous for Optus's corporate reputation after the data leak last year. There is no relationship between the two. Uh, We operate a very reliable, very good service for our customers. We offer them great value. Uh, We offer unique services and uh, we pride ourselves on going the extra mile for our customers. So this is a very unusual occurrence.
2: We're deeply sorry that it occurred and we will do everything we can to make sure it doesn't
1: happen again. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keane and Phil Dobby. Well, that was the CEO of Optus this last week. They are the second biggest phone and internet provider in Australia, giving the PR spiel after all their services, phone, internet, mobile phones. They all went down from early morning across Australia throughout the working day. On Wednesday, it was late in the day before it was fixed. Just days after, water stopped reaching homes for days in parts of Surrey in the UK. And that's just this last week. So why are things that we used to rely on just not working as they should? Now, maybe we are seeing lots of innovation, but wouldn't we rather actually be able to rely on reliability rather than low prices and marketing babble? So what's gone wrong? Is it the lack of expertise, lack of money? Is it privatization? Is it underinvestment? Or is it politics? Whatever it is, there's something going badly wrong. And are we just seeing the start of it? That's this week on the Deep Banking Economics podcast. In Australia this last week, they had an internet outage. Actually, they had an internet phone and mobile phone outage, not just for an hour or so. I think it was about 12 hours in the end. uh, During the day, middle of the day, middle of the week, uh, Okay, it was only one network. It was the Optus network, but they account for a good third of all households and businesses in Australia. It started Wednesday about four in the morning. It lasted, I think, until about five in the afternoon. So millions of people were affected. Hospitals were hit. Melbourne's entire train network had to stop. Uh, now, remember how last week I, I said everyone should read E.M. Forster's book, The Machine Stopped, which was written in the early 1900s. Well, the machine did stop in Australia this last week. So to talk about that and other cases where we have become very reliant on private companies for essential infrastructure. Steve and I are joined this week by Matt Tet, who is the founder, chair of. And CEO, basically the boss of everything at NX Test Labs in Australia, who test technology. And a lot of that is to do with telecommunications uh, equipment that sits on networks. So, Matt, welcome to the podcast. What do you think went wrong with Optus?
0: Oh, thank you, Phil. Um, well, something didn't go right. Let's just put it that way. So my first thought, um, being a, a former network and security engineer, was um, someone's pressed the wrong button. Um, button. And sure enough, it sort of all indications now point to the fact that they had a bit of a mishap with um, their routing configuration tables, um, particularly using border gateway protocol, which um, replicates, I guess, if you make a mistake, it's going to broadcast it to all the other routers. and uh, If it's a big enough mistake, you're likely to crash uh, the network and all the... The systems, which um, it's not just a simple fix like a content management system where you can log in and and fix it. If you can't log in anymore because you've killed your network, you're actually going to have to get people boots on the ground to go and plug into the equipment. So
1: it's basically it's human error because, I mean, we hear about, you know, redundancy built into into networks that, you know, nothing can go wrong because you've got... Redundancy, but the the redundancy is the infrastructure, isn't it? I mean, there's you've got the technology that sits on top of it, and you've only got one set of technology which is controlling all of that, you know, duplicated infrastructure. Well, thinking
0: about it the last uh, 24 hours, you'd like to hope that um, such a, a major outage couldn't necessarily be caused by the failure of one human or the error of one human. So, I'd say it's a multitude of factors which have, have led to. To this incident actually occurring, um, because you would imagine that most organisations, particularly organisations like Singtel Optus, would have um, procedures and policies in place to check, double check, and triple check um, systems before they they go live. Which is why there's probably a good chance that it might be one of their um their peering partners, which is which has done it. But again, that's not letting. Letting anyone off the hook because at the end of the day, regardless of who you're trusting, you've got to ensure that that trust is well placed. And you know, just someone else missed it doesn't mean you shouldn't miss it. Well, I, either. So, so I've
1: got this theory though. When it comes to IT infrastructure, telcos really don't understand what they've got. And I'll give you an example. I uh, was a customer of BT, a business customer of BT here in the UK. And they started, when I joined them, they started, and I was, you know, I'd switched to them from EE. So I was using exactly the same infrastructure, actually owned by the same company. Uh, And uh, But they somehow had this idea that I had requested two broadband lines attached to the same phone number, which clearly is not possible. Uh, But they started charging me for both. And then my network kept on cutting off and then starting again. They had someone coming out. I don't know how many times uh, openreach engineers came out because they they thought it was a line fault. Uh they could, no one could really quite figure out until one of those engineers says, "Oh yes, I've seen this before. It's an IT problem where the infrastructure is confused by the fact it's too, you've got two uh two connections. So it keeps on trying to switch between the two. Clearly no one understands what they're working with. You know there's this uh, it, it is this because it's been built up over a long time stuff is built on top of other stuff and you just lose track of where you started from, don't you?
0: Legacy systems, yeah. Legacy systems are the bane of any ICT project issue. When you get to a certain size and scale like that of um, of BT or Optus, you end up having to build on top of your legacy systems and hope that the middleware holds it all together. So a perfect example of that is in the past, billing systems were completely separate and autonomous to their operational systems, but then someone probably thought it was a good idea one day to say, well, instead of manually or having um, different records, let's converge the two. And instead of going, we'll rebuild the billing system or rebuild the operating operating network system, they thought they'll build some middleware and put it together. Now, when someone accidentally, and you're right, human error, puts in the fact that you've got two services and then the billing system competes with the operational system to say, No, this one. No, that one. It's a special individual case.
1: Yeah, well, uh, the easiest way, it seemed the only way of solving it in the end was actually to move companies. And the problem was, uh, again, same infrastructure. So clearly it was an IT problem because the problem fixed itself. But, Steve, I mean, we talk about companies being too big to fail. I mean, clearly that's a nonsense because lots of big companies have failed. Uh, But uh, even so... Even if they're not you know, even if they survive, that doesn't mean they're not too big to fail us. This was a bit of a calamity, wasn't it? And to make it worse, Optus isn't an Australian business anymore. It's entirely owned by SingTel, Singapore Telecoms, which is itself owned by a Singapore investment company that's got four hundred billion US dollars in its portfolio of which analysts believe Optus is worth you know, somewhere between 8 and 12 billion. They know that because they, they they want to basically hive it off and sell it on the ASX at some point. They might have delayed that now. So it's at best 1.5% of their portfolio. So actually... Do they really care too much about this company that's not even, you know, situated in the same country as they are, and such a small part of their portfolio?
2: Yeah, that's a large part of the problem when you privatise something, and particularly when you allow international investors to uh, to buy it out. I mean, that's what one of the jokes we we discussed earlier about the uh, British rail system, where most of it has been privatised, and most of the so-called private owners are actually the state-owned. Uh, rail companies of Europe, and it's a nice little money only for them. But you know their, their orientation is in milking British consumers as much as they can, rather than maintaining the infrastructure. So this is this is a similar similar sort of thing in that sense.
1: But I mean, if it's critical infrastructure, should you nationalise it? Because maybe this is a warning. If I mean, this was only one company. This was Optus. Yeah. If the entire country had been brought to a standstill, I mean, only a third of it was as it is. Uh, so actually, maybe, I mean, a question for both of you, maybe infrastructure competition is actually the safest way when we're dealing with uh, what is critical infrastructure.
2: Well, no, you, mean, you mean what multiple infrastructure providers?
1: Yeah. No, So Optus I mean, is running a network, is running a network, uh, Vodafone. You know, we've got... It, 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 so if one of them fails, at least we've got the other two to, to, uh, yeah, to rely you, on.
2: but the problem is you can't switch across to them. They're competitors. So you can't say, oh, my Optus has failed, instantly Vodafone takes over. Uh, you know, they're, they're going to fight tooth and nail against that sort of arrangement. So you're not going to get... You know, uh, alternative uh, infrastructure systems seamlessly transferring from one to when the other one fails. Uh, the real problem here is that you have a company. Well, there's several problems, but the, one of them is, is is the lack of sufficient redundancy in the system, and that can happen with a private company in what has always been a private uh, area. For example, Boeing, the Boeing 737 that started falling out of the sky uh, a few years back. And and uh, what happened was, first of all, Boeing wanted to compete with, uh, and this was competition led to the problem in some ways, Boeing was being outcompeted by Airbus. They needed a mid-scale jet to take the place of it. They decided to scale up of whatever the previous model was. Uh, I think the you know, seven three seven light to seven three seven heavy. Let's say seven three seven max. Simply, it was,
1: wasn't it? Where yeah, it was they, the, yeah, they whacked. And the yeah, fundamental yeah. problem with it was that if it wasn't, it was controlled by computers, wasn't it? It was front heavy. If if it didn't have well, it computers, was, it
2: was, no, it, it wasn't just that. It was first of all, it was yes, it had to be controlled by computers because it was unstable. So, like a, when you design a plane, the, the, with a plane you want to be able to, if the engines fail, it glides. That's what you want to have happen, and that was the case with the seven three seven. The seven three seven max was too top heavy because of the larger engines and therefore they compensated by computer software. But the real weakness, apart from that, and they should have told people about this, uh, the the real competition drove them to bring in a machine which was unstable, which itself is a bad start. But the second thing they did, and this is the part which is quite ridiculous, and it shows the change from an engineering culture dominating Boeing to a management, management culture dominating Boeing, there have to be indicators at the front of the plane uh, for the level of wind shear or whatever. I'm, I'm not sure what the actual technical thing, though. You know, whether the nose was dipping too much and so on. And you'd normally think you'd have several of those. Apparently, they only had one. Now, all you have is one one bird hitting that indicator. Bang, it's gone. And suddenly, you don't have a signal. And there was no way for the pilots to override a machine which was sensing that there was, uh, you know, since the sensor was gone it was getting a signal you were in a nosedive and then it started you know raising the plane up and you had a stall and a crash
1: yeah so i mean so, it, the old way used to be of course to over engineer everything didn't it but that's not happening now yeah it's uh, yeah. uh, obviously not happening with with bearing well maybe in a way it was over engineered or over complicated but i mean so is the answer that you privatize that you nationalize these companies i mean that's not going to solve anything if, if you do that is it you'll just get the same thing done by the public well, no, sector it, not,
2: i not I wouldn't nationalise Boeing, but I think the idea of national infrastructures, critical infrastructures being state-owned, one reason for doing that is that the state doesn't have a short term profit motive and if it was and the, the trouble is you have idiots running the, the government who think it's a business who don't realize they can create money uh, and therefore think they've got to save money and the way they'll save money is by doing the same thing private sector does and for the same reason which is slashing maintenance and slashing uh, a redundancy and therefore you get a more efficient system which will fail and the the re- reality is, you have you should think about what systems you simply do not want to have fail. And one of them, obviously, is the power system, and now telecommunications as well. And, and you mentioned when telecommunications dropped out, the train system stops. So you have such a there, you have to look at some parts of the of your overall productive system and say. What parts can we not allow to stop functioning at any point in time? And therefore, they are the sort of things you should be doing with state provision, and you should be paying what is necessary to maintain it. And often, these so-called cost savings that come from going competitive are nonsense because what you get, you get rather than long-term maintenance, you
1: get marketing and so you
2: get plenty of annoying bloody ads and a system which will
1: crash on you. Yeah, you got those marketing people have got a lot to answer for, haven't they? So you're so one Matt, of them, yeah. I, I was <laughs> one of them exactly in the telecommunications space. Well, so I know that, you know, it's it's cutthroat and it's uh, trying to get your cost margins down as low as possible. Uh overpromising and under under-deliver- delivering, that's what that's the name of the game. So uh, but Matt, um your view then on you know, you've got several networks in in Australia now. I mean, my point was one of them fell over. At least you had the other two. And actually, Steve's saying, "Well, you, you can't switch between one and the other." In fact, they are actually discussing exactly that proposal, aren't they? Because, of course, you do. We do have roaming. You know, you 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 move to another country, you've got roaming infrastructure already there in place, so that you can switch from one network to another. And I know that's being discussed in Australia, isn't it? As perhaps then an answer to a problem like this.
0: Yeah, on cellular networks, obviously, so mobile networks, you can certainly. Do that, but I think the issue, the, the question is, how critical is critical, and what is critical infrastructure? And the problem with uh, industry in Australia and the government is it's all mired down in bureaucracy. So at the end of the day, you've got the industry arguing that they're not critical infrastructure that they just provide entertainment services for their consumers and their subscribers, particularly their home ones. That the organisations that they're providing um, services to should have their own risk mitigation policy. So if you are a Train network, then you should be deemed um, critical and therefore you should have a backup, which may involve having a failover or a redundant system, which is with another carrier, but then again, at what cost? So again, it comes back to that privatisation of systems or cost, budget, effectiveness. And it's really looking at that um, cost-benefit analysis and what the appetite for risk is. And coming back to the main point is how big is too big to fail? I mean, who, who would have thought, that a carrier um, would would lose their entire network, uh, that it would take out their mobile broadband um, services as well um, and basically live leave half the country in the dark. So, you know, it's happened now. There's an example. Is it everyone's waiting for a train wreck to happen before anyone acts? And you're right. They've always talked about having these different systems in place. but. When it comes to mobiles, yeah, roaming, absolutely. I mean, and, and really for critical disaster recovery is where they've been talking about having having that. So if, if a carrier's tower car is taken out by a disaster, then the other carriers will step in and support um, to enable that roaming um, for the mobile phone. But at the end of the day, that's minimum bare level communication, which is voice. Um, like radio communications for emergency services voice is a minimum. I don't think they're going to sit there trying to maintain broadband um, or, or internet um, services in, in some of those instances and certainly wouldn't enable switching between the two. The other thing, when you are talking, Steve, I was thinking about in Australia, we have MBN, which is owned by the federal government, or it's an organisation which is founded by the federal government, which provides a wholesale backbone, Network, but that's literally the transport, the physical layer, not the transport, and that's the responsibility of the um, retail service providers, which sit on top of it. And of course, that was the office with their routing affected that as well. So, if you can take down your whole IP network, you've basically got nothing uh, to, to sell, and that's the, the biggest issue. Whether it's critical, whether it's deemed critical infrastructure through so many meetings with government agencies where they they argue or we don't call it critical infrastructure we call it systems of national significance and again it's just a play on words it goes back to that marketing spin of saying well you know we don't want to be called critical infrastructure because it means we'll have a lot more regulatory burden and we already have too much regulatory burden it's like well how much is too much and who's who's looking over what you're actually doing
1: yeah and the problem with that regulatory burden as well is Who's doing the regulation, and uh, and what are the regulations, and how are they police? Because very often, just you know, in the broader uh, space of any public private partnership, for example, uh, you know, I, th- I think and Steve, your views on this, you know, public private partnership often is seen as a a, a faster way of rolling out a, a piece of infrastructure, so the government doesn't have to do it; they get someone else who's an expert in it. But they don't regulate it because they don't quite know how to set the conditions because it's not their game. The people who are um, managing it are not experts in that field. And there's not enough of them anyway. So, it, you know, it's badly regulated. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the classic thing with, um, uh,
2: you know, you look what's happened with, the, with the, uh, regulation of the banks in, in Australia. You have you effectively regulatory capture. And uh, it's just everywhere. Regulation only works if you've got somebody with an extremely big stick and in a short and a short temper, and that is not the sort of person who gets a job in a regulator most of the time. So uh, you know, and the, and, the, and this has been a decay over time as well. If you look at the fi- uh, financial crisis, uh, how many people went to jail in America because of the financial crisis? Zero. The one person who went there was the one you could not possibly not jail, which was Bernie Bernie Madoff. But if you go back to the 1930s when you had a even though that was after the bubble of the economy of the 1920s, you had a, a much stronger emphasis upon ethics at that stage. It was what's called the Pecora Commission, and that sent hundreds of people to jail for obviously fraudulent behavior during the 1920s stock market bubble. So we've actually let this stuff decay over time. And it isn't just that you know private is better than public or vice versa. One's influence the other and a downward spiral towards incompetence. Mm.
1: So are, are countries anywhere in the world now, with the exception perhaps of China, because they can do what they want, but, uh, you know, in the Western world? are there any countries that are actually capable of delivering large-scale infrastructure projects? So, I mean, I think, Matt, the NBN is a a great example of something that became hugely political. The idea that you... It started with the idea that you'd have fibre broadband, high-speed, very fast broadband tip, every single household in Australia. Maybe, you know, a few people living on farms in the bush, they might be excluded, but generally everybody would have fibre everywhere, which is akin to, you know, the idea in the UK of HS2, which was to build a high-speed rail network down the backbone of Britain, so you could link the north and the south with very regular services travelling at speed, but capacity was the main thing, linking London with Manchester and Leeds. That then became London and Manchester, not Leeds, and then that became London and Birmingham, and then actually we can't make it right into London, so we'll we'll stop somewhere just outside. Uh, so a massive white elephant. So, I mean, it's like it's all just too much for governments to get their heads around almost. Uh, and part of the problem with the HS2, and I think this is part of the problem with the MBN as well, was... Because there were there weren't the again because there wasn't the expertise in the government, they really couldn't keep a handle on costs and look at what was being done. If you're running one of these companies and the government is subsidising you, uh, obviously you are just going to you know build the gold plated solution or at least suck up as much money as you uh, as you can. Uh, and there's no one there to control it. It's,
0: it's not it's not the money; it's the time and governments operate on their terms, three four years. So. You can't make a promise that in 10 years, 15 years, um, we'll deliver fibre to the premises to every single person in Australia, bar a few. You've got to do it incrementally. And that's when um, Malcolm Turnbull came in and said, let's do multi-mix technology for a start and then aim to get fibre to the premises out over time. It's a 15, 20-year life cycle. It's not even about the amount of money. They know if there's enough consumers paying money to the RSPs. RSPs will be paying the money back to MBN, to and I mean you see all the numbers at the beginning, 30 million, 40 million, 70 million, a uh, billion, sorry 90 billion and now they've, they've recovered back to about 30 billion which I think they're about to write off which to them that's acceptable over you know those 15 plus years that they've been doing it and now they are running fibre out to where they can. So they haven't given up on the network build-out and maybe it is an overbuild because they've deployed infrastructure, you know, 10 years ago that they're now um, replacing. But that's that's a normal infrastructure build. But if you hadn't made that promise to get win an election... <laughs> I don't think everyone would have laughed at you.
2: Well, the, the, so, again, it's yeah, a bureaucracy. It isn't bureaucracy. That's politics because you've left the, the guilty party out of here. Yeah. Malcolm was, was being shafted by Tony Abbott who wanted to shaft Kevin Rudd. And, you know, you had so the you know, conservative nutcase um, politician, that's Tony Abbott, telling a uh, progressive nutcase politician, that's Malcolm Turnbull, to try to under, undermine a... Uh, narcissistic uh, politician, that's Rudd, in the other party, and none of them knowing a damn thing about technology. And the the tragedy was that if we'd actually lifted the original idea that Rudd had, it would have been cheaper. Um, And yet Tony sold the whole thing. It's cheaper, and who needs high speed? We all need high speed, and it ended up being more expensive doing the so-called cheap way. So you've got people who don't understand or respect engineering making engineering decisions. Sadly,
1: but there it, is, there it is the issue. It is it's politics getting in the way of what is fundamentally an, an engineering project, and, uh, and, and it gets waylaid by that. Look, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in just a second, because there's another example uh, closer to my home, uh, which is... Unforgivable. Actually, even worse than that, that outage that you saw in Australia the other day, although affecting a smaller number of people, but a more essential service. So we'll come back and talk about that in just a second. It's the Debanking Economics Podcast. Me, Steve Keen, Matt Chet joining us uh, today on the podcast as well.
2: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds at
0: Mint Mobile. We like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot.
1: J.D. Power ranks sleep number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. So an internet and phone outage in Australia. Uh, There's also been a shutdown of water supplies in parts of Surrey in the UK, just uh, around the corner from where I live. Just a couple of examples of private companies failing to provide essential services, is it the fault of privatisation or do government-run organisations also have the ability to stuff things up? Of course they do. In fact, I suspect they might even be better at stuffing things up. We were talking about how politics gets in the way just before the break. Uh, Matt Set and Steve Keane joined me on the uh, Debunking Economics podcast this week. So, um, yeah, just around the corner from me, uh, there's been a case of, for five days in some cases, Godalming, the whole town of Godalming, part, large parts of Guildford, we're without water for the best part of uh, three days at, for everybody last weekend. You some. God come- it was
2: England rather than Australia.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean. Sorry. But, you know, yeah, because we don't wash. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> but they're still trying to fix it. They've got air pockets now because of the shutdown. 13,500 households were affected. Uh, the retail director, at Thames Water, said it was the result of one of the biggest storms they've had in a decade. Decade. I mean, how can you, a once in 10 year event? I mean, how can you engineer uh, for things like that?
2: A system that can't cope with a one in 10 year event. Yeah, yeah. So, so that is time, how
1: under engineered infrastructure is becoming. That is unforgivable, isn't it? And it is a privatized company that is uh, heavily in debt. And I wonder whether, I mean, they're now going to shareholder stress because they need to raise more capital because they obviously need to put more into the, the infrastructure that they've, they've neglected. I don't think they care too much about uh, those shareholders care too much about the, you know, the good people of Godalming. They just want the whole thing not to be nationalized for a knockdown price. They want their shares to hold, hold the value. And that is, you know, that's where they are, an under engineered solution, a company heavily in debt and shareholders who obviously don't want to mm. bail them out. I'm-
2: yeah, I mean, this is uh, this has been the story of privatising uh, essential infrastructure. My favourite example is still what's called the Big Pong. Speaking of Australia, uh, which happened in South Australia when uh, the sewage system was privatised, sold to a French company, and sewage, of course, uses sewage treatment uses ponds of bacteria to break down the uh, the, the waste and the maintenance wasn't done sufficiently so you all, one one day all the aerobic bacteria got destroyed leaving only the anaerobic bacteria and what you got is was hydrogen sulfide and the the, the lucky thing about this for the residents of adelaide was that the uh, the ponds were up upwind so you had for a couple of years adelaide stunk which some, might, some people might think is a permanent situation, given the usual Australian city rivalries. But that was just appalling, and the reason was uh, the, with the profit motive in mind. One way to increase your short-term profits is not to do your long-term maintenance, and this is the problem with privatizing, you know, essential infrastructure. You don't necessarily want the profit motive to be running things, which are absolutely critical and which have lifespans of, you know, fifty to 100, 200 years. Uh, and then that's what England is now suffering from, because you know you 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 have sewage outfalls that are called rivers.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Whenever there's a storm, because the uh, treatment plants aren't able to cope with the, all the extra water. So actually, Thames water was fined only 3.3 3 million, which seems quite you know they got off quite lightly. For in 2017, they pumped millions of litres of undiluted water into rivers. 1,700 fish were killed maybe a few open water swimmers at the same time as well they'll probably keep that quiet uh, but i mean that that was back then i mean it's happening uh, it's happening all the time but matt where do you draw the line what do you think i mean we can talk about telecommunications but you know in in any industry between what should be infrastructure that's owned by the government and where the level of competition should exist so is the nbn for example as a core infrastructure does it make sense that that's owned by the government?
0: Well, imagine if it wasn't. <laughs> imagine what the RSPs would be doing to each other. I mean, one of them would want to own it again, and then you end up with that monopoly, um, which you basically still still got, but it's certainly led to healthy competition for the consumers, which is really what, what um, you know we need. People don't want to pay. Uh, they want to pay the, the amount that they're comfortable paying to get the service that they perceive they're, they're getting. Um and, and don't want to pay more and then it just trickles down from from there so I think having healthy market competition is good but as I said how critical is critical and when should it be a, a, a no-brainer where people you know are regulated the, the prices are regulated and the, and the services should be regulated there should be supply you know kPIs on the slides there should be measurements that are made against them in terms of how they perform and there should be performance indicators which they're enforced and as steve said it should be a regulator with a big stick and a short tempo and unfortunately we've got too much regulation with no teeth at all in australia even in telecommunications there's so many silos in government in australia as i work in the cyber industry as well and you see exactly the same thing too many different department agencies are all running off in the same direction with the same rope and it ends up being like an elastic band they're competing with themselves within within government. They're building their own silos, they're building their own empires and they're not really serving the citizens, which is what their charter's meant to be. They've lost their their way and technology enables that because they can pass the buck they can handball it and say, you know, watching Netflix may not be as important as potentially calling my mother when she's having an emergency, a medical emergency. So, you know, how do you separate those two when they're converged networks, you know? It's all well and good for those that enjoy their their streaming entertainment, but it's not very good for my mum when she's trying to make an emergency call. And, you know, we had a universal service obligation. Um, You know, we had the triple zero call, you know, and and that's just been diluted. Um, So, yeah, Optus, that's a perfect example of when too too much technology can um, convergence, can make too much of an issue and the government's let them get away with it and I'm sure the government know that they're just as much on the hook as, as Optus are which is why the Minister's calling for for answers so they can I'm sure put together their their response to it as well and, and uh, yeah I can't imagine that there's going to be any uh, there might be hedge rolling but I can't imagine that there's going to be any, any major reforms or, or funds going one way or the other because all the other telcos know that they're probably in exactly the same and
1: they'll all be lobbying against it so and so the, the optus network so i mean the mobile network is a different thing obviously but the the optus fixed line network was obviously sitting on the MBN, wasn't it so this is so this oh, is all yeah so the government is providing the infrastructure at a certain level and it's all the stuff that's put on top that's enabling the transmission across that which which yep. can which can still fail so so the government is stopping someone digging up uh, you know cutting up uh, cutting a pipe in half um uh, mm. uh, and making sure that that level things are functioning correctly and i guess that's mm. that's the critical level isn't it because so long as they can do that that stops all networks going um mm-hmm. maybe that's enough so does that mean and yeah, stay-
0: that's just the internet i mean yeah. if you have a if you have a look at it it's at the end of the day the convergence with um the telcos is that they all use IP transit as their backhaul. So from their tower, so you can still connect to the local cellular tower, but that tower can't connect back to your network. And and so that was the issue that Optus came across. If they had a separate backbone for their mobile phone network, they were another carrier or something like that. Then their mobile phones would have still been up, but it was their network, um, and everything went down. So. You know, and again with MBN, yes, they are looking after the physical, and that is kind of their get out of jail free cards, I guess, is where they say, well, it wasn't a physical fault with the actual hardware. But who looks after the configurations? Yeah, they might have some certain expectation that the carriers know how to configure their their networks and run them effectively. But at the end of the day, who's who's checking the checkers? Who you know doesn't doesn't happen. So but isn't that, a, isn't
1: that isn't that a the best hybrid model, Steve? Where because it's it's the same as like that. I know you you're not a big fan of the rail networks in the UK, and I don't blame you. But it's it's a it's a similar model in that the government maintains the railways uh, badly, as it turns out, because they're not very good at it. But the and in fact, a lot of the problems that are hit by the retail operators that are running trains along those lines are problems with the actual rail infrastructure which the the government is maintaining. So that's a bit like the M B N. So you've got them, you know, the government is maintaining the core infrastructure. What's put across the top is open to retail players and they're providing competition. What's wrong with that approach?
2: Well, it's often, as you said, that we've got two parts of the system that are both trying to do things badly both in believing they're trying to save costs. So a government, which doesn't have to save money, believes it has to save money and therefore underdoes the underlying infrastructure. So in Australia, you get this ludicrous idea of the a mixed a optical fibre with, with copper, which was... Put across as saving money when, A, you didn't need to save it because the government creates money by its own spending, and B, it gave you a far less effective system. So you had low quality coming out of the government and therefore more likely to break down. And then you, I don't mind having the competitive services on top of that system, but you then have, again, probably cost savings inside. Inside their system, so you get a lack of redundancy uh, for a system which have to have redundant capacity, and like the the rail system in the UK. I mean, I laugh at the train carriages over there, and which the, the comparison to make is, is as much as it's still got its own problems. Look at the European system, and the European system you have you know, public ownership of the of the uh, of the infrastructure and of the most of the rail companies. There are some private, but most of them are state owned, and they provide. You know, high quality in both cases. It's like passing from the 19th to the 21st century to make a trip from the English rail system to the European one, and in you know which one had the more publicly based one? It's the European. So this myth that going to the private sector, well, the argument that going to the private sector would improve everything because they're more efficient and more and more and profit is a better motivator than than uh, public service, just turned out to be wrong, and we're stuck with the result of a dysfunctional ideology, combined with people who've lost the engineering skills that used to be commonplace 40 or 50 years ago.
1: So, Matt, if we went back to the to, to a future where, you know, we basically there's this vertical integration, it's all publicly owned, that would be a step back, wouldn't it? I mean, we'll be back in the infrastructure, in, in the in Australian space, we'll be back to Telstra owning everything.
0: Yeah. It'd be but owned well, by well, the
1: government. Telstra. Well,
0: yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I mean look, they didn't do a terrible job, but they also didn't do an efficient job. And I think that's that's the key. When the government stepped in and tried to develop the MBN, as I said, it was purely it wasn't money, it was driven by time. And how quickly can you get the numbers? You know, I wanna make a promise that I can get eighty percent of the country covered by this new MBN one way or the other, regardless of how poor the service quality is or how all the different technology types are, but that's what I want to promise and leveraging what's already there instead of wholesale replacing it. Um, And it's taken that much longer to get to the point of of where we are now. So, you know, even if, even if oh God, imagine if MBM became a retailer, Um, you know, it's it's just the, the model that they've got to have retail service providers on top does work to some extent but again it's the quality of those retail service providers and the service levels you know i think some of the carriers actually rely on the fact that the consumers are willing to waive their service guarantees and that i mean the fact that you can actually ask a consumer to sign a form to say i understand that i'm getting a better price and therefore i waive my guarantees is i just i just can't believe that a regulator would let a carrier get away with that
1: so what they're saying, so well, basically again. they're basically saying, yeah, yeah pay yeah. less and we'll give you a shoddy service because we won't yeah. invest in the infrastructure. Yeah. It's the oh. old
0: mentality with the days of dial-up. I mean, I, I, you know, we run um, Australia's third largest ISP in the days of dial-up, as you know, and we had 80,000 subscribers and we, had, um, we, we were doing virtual operations for some of the smaller ISPs that couldn't afford the points of presence. And there were a number of them that actually ran two services identical. That like there was literally no difference except on their billing system. One person would pay, you know, twelve ninety nine, and the other person would pay nineteen ninety nine. And theoretically, the twelve ninety nine service was less than the nineteen ninety nine service, but they were identical. And so it was all about the consumer money, um, who was prepared to pay what. Are you, do you think you're getting a premium service because you're paying slightly more? Internode Ironet with the data. I mean, we used to have to pay for data, so you'd sort of offer more services more data and therefore a higher price but in reality your transit costs are still the same particularly when peering
1: comes into play. so you know, i've been in that game as you know matt the, uh, charging people for different getting, levels of uh, of, yeah. of, yep. of data and actually charging uh, a little bit yep. more for way more data that you know in those days people weren't going to use but the perceived value of what they they were getting even though they didn't use it well, and, and uh, the ones was, that
0: didn't turn them sorry yeah exactly get rid of them
1: <laughs> too expensive so yeah so even back in those days you know we were i mean you know everything was sailing close to the wind because it's a it's a low margin game so steve and still is of course yeah all around the world uh but i mean it's not just in that space so steve is the problem whether it's publicly owned or privately owned that we just are not investing in uh in, in the infrastructure in a way that's needed so i'll give you an example of uh, what happened with Centrica. When when they privatised gas in uh, the UK, one of the first things Centrica did was to close their gas storage. They had... A 30 square kilometre reservoir under the North Sea, it could hold 600 billion cubic feet of gas, but it was closed in 2017 because it was too expensive. The government refused to provide the support that they needed to maintain it. And why would they maintain it? Because all it's going to do, obviously, when demand is high and supply is low, is reduce prices because they'd still have a gas supply. So the UK now has 2%, related to gas demand, 2% storage, whereas in Europe they've got uh, north of 20%. So now the government has said, well, we think you should reopen this gas field. They'll provide some support for it. But uh, they're only going to reopen 5% of what it was before. And the reason, Centrica say, is because they are worried that down the track there will again be lack of government support. So the same thing could could happen again. So this is a problem, isn't it? And that points to a few things. One, the profit motive for Centrica is why they closed it down in the first place. Secondly, when the government is saying, well, we'll pitch in, they're saying, well, we don't believe you because this gets back to the whole political thing. There could be a change of government, uh, and that commitment could disappear. So they don't want to make the investment, which is a bit like you know the the shoddy rolling stock on the trains in Britain, because they know that after six years or whatever it is, they're going to have to renew their licence. So why make the investment when their future is so uncertain? And that is the problem when you've got public uh, and private partnerships like this.
2: Yeah, and there's all been a con job. I mean, it basically ideology-dominating policy. Uh, and this is such a decay from how we were in the immediate post-war period where the emphasis was on providing you know, the, the best quality you could give uh, to people who'd experienced the horrors of the Great Depression and the Second World War, and then the ideology of neoliberalism has come through there and saying let's do the cost-benefit analysis, blah, 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 and this is all short-term thinking, and there are some things, you know, rail, rail uh, gas, power, sewerage, Telecommunications now, where you want reliability, that's the absolute first first priority, and that has been killed by neoliberalism that doesn't have any concept of the different time spans of, you know, selling a, a hamburger down the road versus enabling 24-hour operation of uh, of, of power systems. So you don't suddenly have power being turned off to a uh, to an iron and steel factory, and then bang, you've got a blast furnace you have to throw away. So it, it is. It, it, both public and private has been degraded by this attitude that we've got to focus upon minimising costs.
1: Right, but how do so? How do we fix that issue? Because you can't. Nationalise everything, and the you know, and particularly in areas where there's a need for speed, like for example, you know, as we move towards net zero, and there's a lot of infrastructure needed for that, uh, we can't have the government building uh, all of the wind farms that are needed. For example, they're going to need to somehow rely on the private sector to do a, a chunk of that work. So what's the what's the uh, you know the optimal model moving forward? Well, I think
2: it's too late to move forwards on that front. I think with what we've been doing is denigrating the importance of a long term perspective in engineering. And what we've got is a short-term perspective in marketing, and that uh, you know that that would work if you got a blackboard economy, not
1: a real one. So sack all the marketing people to start with. That's that's easy, isn't it? Uh, so Matt, what about what, what? do you see as being the ideal hybrid model where we've got you know we're using government money to its most effective way, still got to have that impetus, that drive, which probably isn't going to come from the government.
0: Yeah. Steve said it before; it's all politicking with a K, and I mean that's the issue. Is the more bureaucracy feeds upon itself the more those silos get built and how do you how do you deconstruct them like don't get me wrong I'm not you know I'm not anti-government and I'm not certainly not anti any of the individuals in the government we do the majority of our work with government departments and agencies and there are some good people in there but sadly there are quite a number which just drive their own agendas and we've seen it time and time again over the last 30 years that we've been working in our field of independent testing, that's, we come across it, the people that are anti-independent testing are the ones that don't want to know the truth. They don't want to know the facts about the technologies that they're looking at investing in. They just want to spend the money or get the result without spending money. So, you know, it's a a catch-22 situation. Um, As you're talking before about infrastructure and the poor levels of maintenance and engineering, road systems are perfect. Example of it. I mean, the the state of the roads currently um, in Victoria, where, where I live, is absolutely abysmal. And all the local government agencies and, and the road transport agency are blaming the weather. You know? <laughs> it's like, well, you know, it goes back to that 10 year, once in a 10 year sort of thing. The roads have been there a lot longer. It's maintenance and keeping it up before they deteriorate too much and if they're not spending the money they are going to deteriorate and it's going to cost them more in the long run but they know they're only going to be around for three to four years and it's going to be someone else's problem down the track and you have multiples of that it's terrible.
1: Yeah, I mean, we, we, yeah, the potholes get really bad here during winter, which uh, obviously that I mean, how can that be foreseen? That's a once once in a year event. Uh, the, <laughs> yeah. uh, but uh, I mean, here, fortunately, uh, the the cancellation of a large part of the HS2, Rishi Sunak is going to uh, that forward thinking project. Uh, Rishi Sunak is going to spend ten percent of that fixing potholes. So that's uh, that's progress for you. But Steve is maybe uh, maybe the answer is that you hive off some of this responsibility away from government, some of these long-term projects. So you know how, okay the NHS is not the most efficient organisation, but it is sort of untouchable. Uh, You know, the Conservatives are trying to, you know, bit by bit chip away at it to privatise it, but they're not going to have a great deal of success with that. So the NHS runs as a, as a separate entity funded by the government. It's, not, it's got experts. It's got, you know, people who understand medicine who are running it. Maybe we need more of that sort of stuff. I mean, people would unkindly probably call them quangos, but maybe we need to do the same for uh, energy. We need to do the same for transport. Just hive them off and have an untouchable budget and dedicated experts who are actually running these critical parts of uh, of our countries. Yeah,
2: that's getting away from politicians and ideology dominating decision making. When you're going to have the the, the point that neoclassicals neoliberals would make back as well, maybe too much money, they'll always expand their own costs, etc., cetera, et cetera, We've got to monitor them to maintain their costs, uh, to minimize their expenditure. But th- this has been done with an ideology focus and not a quality of life focus. And if you're spending as much time as I do in Asia at uh, various times, you see that the European countries and American are, are dominated by sort of a, a marketing and a... Uh, a counter attitude towards everything whereas in countries that are still trying to establish a decent level of living and infrastructure you've got a a sort of state you know, an attitude that the state is trying to construct the system is trying to build a nation and consequently you get far better infrastructure in asia particularly in china than you find in europe and that's a sign of just how the cost cutting and and profit profit maximizing attitude that dominates the West is actually leading to its decay.
1: Also, of course, they don't have the legacy to contend with, so building from building from scratch is always a a good position to be in, isn't it? Uh, look, we'll we'll leave it there for now. I, I'm not sure we've solved anything, as as always. We've highlighted a problem. Maybe we're part of the way towards finding a solution, but it's always good to talk about it. anyway. Matt, great to have you on. Uh, I haven't spoken to you for years, so it's been... I've enjoyed talking to you. Great, good Talk to you, Ian. Thank and you, see. Phil. Thanks for that. Alright, thank you, Steve. Catch you next time. Thank you, Matt. Bye. The Debunking Economics Podcast